Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El, it's Gail Simmons calling from Bravo's Top Chef. I am so excited to step into The Walk-In with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time because I know that we grew up in the food industry around the same time and have so much to discuss. So, looking forward, I will dress accordingly. I'll keep myself warm because those walk-ins can be chilly, but I know you're going to make it great. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. I'm really excited to uh, introduce you all to my guest today who has offered to step into the walk-in with me. I'm extremely excited. It is the one and the only Gail Simmons. That's right. The Gail Simmons from The Top Chef. Gail has been a judge on Bravo's Emmy-winning series Top Chef for the past 17 years. She was head critic on Top Chef Masters and host of Top Chef Desserts and Top Chef Amateurs. Gail published two books, a memoir titled Talking With My Mouthful, My Life as a Professional Eater, and a cookbook titled Bringing It Home, Favorite Recipes from a Life of an Adventurous Eater. That sounds like my kind of book. She was also a special projects director at Food & Wine Magazine, and through her production company, Bumble Pie, Gail scouts potential female on-air talent for food media. That's a a beautiful introduction. That's everything. That's all you need to ever know. (laughs) I wanted to just call you queen of Top Chef, but, you know. Uh, Maybe I'm like the princess. The princess? Okay. Take princess. Padma can stay there. Padma can stay there. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I think that there's room for many queens, right? There's you queens right. of many things. We are all queens. Yes, queens of that's many things. That's true. We're different. Absolutely. Yeah. But I thought it was really important to just kind of let people know exactly what you do. It's a it's a huge franchise and working in media has so many different parts. And I think all the work that goes into it, you deserve the accolade. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very proud of what we have accomplished. I've been reading and researching and just really seeing how far the brand has come is really amazing. It is. And we're going to get into that. But first, Gail, I have to come clean with you. I don't really like pickles. We're still going to be friends. (laughs) Okay, good. I was hoping you would say that. We'll still be friends. I can get over it. Okay. Um, But I do think you're missing out on a dimension of life that could help fulfill your every desire. I don't know. That sounds elaborate, but, but it, you know, pickles are a big part of my life. They're a big part of my life. And I knew you would say that. And I was afraid that we would start off on the wrong foot, but I'm glad that you um, have some empathy for me, Mm -hmm. but I would love for you to tell me about your fandom of pickles a little bit. Sure. Uh, You know, it's funny pickles. I mean, everyone I think has uh, something in their life that it kind of epitomizes taste memory for them. Mm-hmm. Taste memory is so powerful. It drives how we eat, where we're from. You know, it tells so much about where we're from, who we are. At least for me, pickles have always been that ingredient that are like the window to my soul. Mm-hmm. Sounds <laughs> like an exaggeration. You know, there's the very superficial thing of like, I just love a pickle. I love fermented cucumbers. I love any fermented vegetable. I love the sourness and the 
tartness and the puckeriness and the spiciness and the crunch. And I just find them to be like a really satisfying food all around. Mm -hmm. There's the science of fermentation that I find fascinating. And I think pickles are just such a great example when you talk about science and food of seeing how one ingredient can be transformed through science and through chemistry. And then I think about the soul of a pickle um, and how pickles are in so many cultures around the world. Um, For me, they took the form of like my Eastern European roots. Mm -hmm. I'm first generation Canadian. Okay. And now my children are first generation Americans. Uh, I'm not an American citizen. I grew up in Canada and my father's from South Africa, but his ancestry and my mother's ancestry are both rooted in Eastern Europe. Mm. My mom's family came to North America. Between the First and Second World War, my father's family immigrated from Eastern Europe to South Africa before the First World War, probably at the turn of the 20th century. So the Eastern Europe has a deep history of pickles as preservation because there was no refrigeration and to get through those long winters and um, to preserve their food pickling in so many cultures, right, was the way that they did that. And so, you know, I grew up with like a really strong love for traditional Jewish deli. And the Jewish deli, not just being a New Yorker is such a big deal, but, you know, in my history as a Canadian, but growing up with great deli around Mm me, Jewish deli, it was, you know, pickles are, are featured in so many ways, pickled cabbage, pickled cucumbers. And my father was a pickle maker. I mean, not professionally. He was an engineer, but mm-hmm. he pick he made pickles every summer. So my childhood, every summer, he would bring home a bushel of Kirby pickles from the big uh, farmer's market in Toronto. And he would pickle for like three days. And my father was not a cook. He's actually a good cook now, but you know, 30, 40 years ago, he was not a cook. This was the one thing or one of one of three things that he knew how to cook. <laughs> But or make, I should say, because it was more of a making of a crafting. So we always had jars of pickles in our basement, in our cellar uh, that we would eat all year round at every meal. And my dad's pickles were the best. So they followed me into my adulthood and they will always be the standard by which all other pickles are measured. So you just kind of nailed a lot of the things that I do like about pickles. I also love the science. Um, I also love the historical perspective of how pickling was used to preserve food for a lot of cultures. My mother also grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Detroit, Michigan. It was a lot of integration was happening at that time. So my grandparents were like one of the first Black families to move into a Jewish neighborhood. And so the Jewish deli was also a very huge part of a little bit of my growing up, but a lot of hers. Sure. J- Detroit has some serious deli. Oh, yeah. Serious, serious deli. I have I have a whole, like, Jewish food. That was my first experience working in a, a kosher bakery. That was my very first cooking experience. Oh, we have so much to talk about, Al. So we much. We might have to take this offline later. <laughs> I think we will. My mom worked in a Jewish deli when she was pregnant with me, and she ate pickles incessantly. Classic. So I think that is kind of like why I'm like over pickles now. But here, this is yeah. gonna, this is going to kick you further because I know how you feel about sweet pickles, right? You don't really feel like sweet pickles are the thing that's no, really the a, only. They're not a pickle. They're not what I want. That's the only pickle I like because there's a lot of sugar added. I don't want sugar. You know, I want like a real simple fermentation. I like the lacto fermentation of just like pure sour, 
Very interestingly enough, we had one of our friends, uh, Adrian Miller, who is an author, right? He was talking about how Black communities in the South make Kool-Aid pickles. Yes. I didn't grow up eating that way. I'm from the Midwest, right? That's very much a Mm -hmm. Southern thing. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was strange. But like, what do you think about that? Well, you know, what I will say about it, to your point of like appreciating the science, when the the science of Kool-Aid is like red dye number 40 or whatever, but (laughs) it's fine. It's fine. Kool-Aid is totally fine. But what I think is interesting is that what it speaks to is, and what I find so interesting about how food evolves in different regions of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Where we talk about like the macro idea of pickles and how there are pickles in every culture, certainly in Black Southern culture, certainly in, you know, white Eastern European Jewish culture, Mm -hmm. all over Asia, certainly all over Africa. Like there's pickles Um, you know, in so many forms all over the world. And then they are taken through the diaspora of these cultures and they migrate with us and they evolve, right? And so when I think of the Kool-Aid pickle, it makes me think of like the bagel and how, you know, you take an ingredient that was one way when it started somewhere and then they used what they had yes. and it evolved into a thing. And that thing is very special as a taste memory for a lot of people. And so I like, I appreciate it. That's why I love what I do because we learn about these traditions that can be traced, right? Yes. Through our ancestry and through the like migration of experience. And I think that's what makes America cool. I agree. I think the world cool, the world cool. Right. That's why we do it. I think, (laughs) you know, like there's always that huge part of us that just loves to eat, but then there's the other part that's like really curious about, you know, how other people see food and how other people treat food, especially as it relates to like history and culture. I think for me, that's a huge draw to this work. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. everything. It's the, it is the draw for me of why I do what I do. Yeah. Same, same. FIFO. First in, first out. Okay, Gail, so you know the walk-in has many forms and functions, one of which is also my favorite segment of this conversation, and it's called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO stands for? First in, first out. That's right. You got it. And so we're pretty much going to talk about young Gail and how she came into the food world and where you are today. You know, since we're talking about like food history and culture, I know you grew up in a very food-centric family and your mom uh, had a cooking school in your home growing up. And I also know your mom did particularly want you to work in food. We sh- we share that experience. I think a lot of people in culinary's parents were just I think like, so too. What? Especially back in the. I don't want to make us sound old, right? But our industry has come a long way, and it's gotten a lot more respect, and yeah. there's a lot more opportunity. But I think at its base, and I'm assuming this of your mom too. And I please correct me if I'm wrong, but like at the base, my mom just wanted me to do something that would make my life easier than hers was, right? Like every generation just wants to give opportunity to their children and want their children to have an easier path. Yes. And to do something that will bring them whatever that generation's idea of success is without as much strife. You know, my mom, when she, her idea of what the food industry was, was very narrow because that's what it was. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when she was working in the food industry, you were like, you know, working in a restaurant and that was really hard work and really not respected work at the time yet. Right. 
And then she, you know, running this cooking school like she did, and she was a food writer, but it was not, and she loved it and she was great at it, but it didn't, she was worried about making a living. It was a hard living to make. Like it wasn't, it wasn't going to make her rich. You know Mm -hmm, what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and she just wanted me to do something that would be easy for me to make a living. She worried that when I told her I want to be in the food industry, that it, it would be hard because she didn't know what those opportunities meant. And she certainly had no idea what I was going to do. And neither did I. Yeah. And still there's a piece of her, even though I have had a modicum <laughs> of success at it and taken a path that she never imagined I would take, like none of us could have dreamt of the route, but she still once in a while is like, you know, you can still go to law school. Just <laughs> That's so interesting considering that she herself took like, she was, she was doing very non-traditional work. Like I'm sure the time, then it was not like cooking school, like other than like Julia Child, right? Like who was doing yep. that, you know? And and you're so right because also now that I'm a mom, Elle, what's so eye-opening, and we say this, but like it never really sunk in until I became a mom, that it was such a perfect example is like your children will do what you do, not do what you say. Yes. You have to set example. And so me going into the food industry was truly by her example. Mm-hmm. She said one thing, but she did another. And it's what she did that I followed. Yeah. No, no matter what she said. And it proves, number one, that no matter what you say, your kids aren't going to listen. <laughs> they but <don't>. also, <laughs> the example you set is so formative in ways that you never imagine until your children become adults and set their own path. And that is totally out of your control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is true. They are their own people. This is true. What was your dad thinking about it at the time? Was he, mo- I feel like dads can sometimes be so indifferent. They're like, baby, do what you want to do. What do what yeah, makes you yeah. happy? You know? Sort of a loaded question because I think, I mean, you didn't mean for it to be, but my dad was exactly like that. He never really voiced an opinion. He was happy for what I wanted to do and, and just supported me unconditionally which was great. And I think he did see how much joy it gave my mom and and that he liked that I wanted to do it. He never expressed interest or uninterest either way. He was supportive. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to have a therapy session about it, I will say that he had very double standards for me and for my brothers. Really? How so? I just think he inve- he was more worried about what my brothers would do because there was still a very traditional piece of my father. He came from a very conservative upbringing. And I think in a way he was like, I want to be delicate here because my father is my best friend and the most extraordinary supportive human of me and of what I do. But certainly I think there was a part of me that he was like, I will take care of you. But like the man has to go out. You know, I had two older brothers and Mm -hmm. they had to, he was more worried about their sort of traditional work paths. But if I took a less traditional path, that was okay because I was a woman maybe. And he thought I'll take care of you. Or maybe like you'll get a husband who will take care of you in a way, you know, there was like a, a bit of a conservativeness, traditionalness that he wasn't as worried about me, which is the irony because my mother was the opposite. My mother was always so insistent. She came from a, a family where being financially independent was so important to her. Mm -hmm. And she taught me that from an early age. And it was always so important to me. And I'm not saying my father didn't want me to be financially independent. Sure. But for my mom as a woman, it was vital that she teach me that it doesn't matter who's in your life. You are the only one who's sticking around for you. And you need to make sure that whatever you do, which is probably why she was worried about me being in the food industry. She just wanted me to be able to be financially independent, no matter what happened in my life no matter what relationships I was in, 
or if I was never in, you know, she just never wanted me to have to rely on someone else. I think global patriarchy is such a freaking insane, nasty phenomenon, right? Yeah. And it works in ways that you don't even, you know, this is like systemic. I mean, it truly is a structural thing that I never put into words in my family. And I'm not blaming anyone because my I am so lucky to have had the parents I have. But it is interesting to think back to those moments of becoming an adult as a woman and how different an experience it was in my household for me versus my brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, it's not, it's also just not absolutely unfathomable that a father or a husband is looking at their sons as fathers and husbands. And also, you know, and this is not a defense of the patriarchy by any means. I want to make that clear, no, no. you know, but like, no, you know, being in a role and knowing that, you know, that there's an expectation of providing. Yeah, there was a pressure. He moved to America from South Africa to make a better life for his family. Yeah. And that pressure was on for him to be the provider and that he took that role very seriously in the in the best way. Like he just wanted to care for his family and he wanted to make sure that whatever my brothers did and one took a traditional path and one certainly didn't. And I think that was a legitimate concern for him and, that, and it had to be because that's what he knew. Yeah. I think there might've been more of an underlying notion of like, he cared almost more if you were happy with what you did, whereas your brothers had just the responsibility of, like, caring for a family. Like, I don't care if yeah. you love your job or not. <laughs> you have to care for whatever family you take on, you know? I think you're right. I think that there that's a very two-sided fence, and I understand all those perspectives. And this, that is very interesting to, to have to grow. Because as a child or a young person, you don't recognize that that's what that is. You just see that something different all. is happening between you and your sibs, and you can't really wrap your head around it. But knowing they're your parents, and they only want the best for you, and always having to kind of keep that in the back of your mind, I get that. And it's, And now, you know, as a parent, I have a girl and I have a boy and mm-hmm. we'll see how that plays out. Like, but I also think I'm raising them in such a different time. I mean, for thousands of reasons, such a different time. We've come a long way, but we've also, we have more weight on our shoulders than ever Yeah, and responsibilities in the world. And I hope I raise my children, you know, with the examples that my parents taught me for sure about hard work and kindness and all of those things. But also I want both of my children to have both of those things, to love what they do and find passion and find satisfaction in what they choose to do in the world. But also, I also want them both to feel that they need to be financially independent no matter what life throws them. And like my, my daughter, just as much, if not more so, we all know as women in a way, because there are so many opportunities for us to be pushed aside. And so having that sense of self and confidence that they could do it on their own and to find something that allows them a path that allows them to do that. Right. But like, who knows how that's going to play out. So we'll talk in 30 years and I'll let you know. With that in mind, I'm remembering that I read that some of your parents' friends really knew that food was for you and they kind of could see you in that world. And so um, what, what do you think that they were seeing in you at that time? Were you spending time in the kitchen with your mom? Were you just... I only got into the kitchen. I mean, yes, when I was little, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with my mom because the kitchen was the heart of our home and she was cooking all the time. If it wasn't to feed our family of five, it was to run this cooking school that was in our home. So there was 
she was always in the kitchen, always, always, always at the counter cooking something. And so, yes, I spent a lot of time, but then I, you know, as I kind of became a teenager, I moved away from the kitchen and into college. It was only kind of at the end of college that I really clued into this being a career that I wanted to pursue and came back to the kitchen. And it was only then when I graduated college and I moved back home and told my mom's friends that I wanted to be in food media, which was exactly what my mom did. Although the word food, the words food media meant something entirely different mm-hmm. back then than they do now. Right. Yes. They certainly didn't mean TV and podcasts, right. They meant like working for a food magazine or newspaper that had a food section. Like those are the only options if I wasn't working in a restaurant. And as soon as I said that all my parents friends, their immediate reaction was like, oh, that's so beautiful. You're just like your mom. Mm -hmm. Like we just see so much of your mom in you. And that's so incredible. And, you know, obviously that's a clear path. That's what your mom did. And now you're going to carry on with her legacy. And like that made me furious. I hated that. Really? (laughs) Sure. Because like when you're 22 years old, who wants to be told you're just like your mom? First of all, I didn't want it to feel like destiny was out of my control, right? Like no matter how I tried to rebel, it came back. I had no control over what I did. I just was going to inevitably be like my mom, which we all know we sort of are no matter how we fight it. But at the time, it's like a horrible thing to feel as a young person who's just wants to be free of Yes, have your own identity. Right? Yeah. And have my own identity. Yeah. So I hated that. I felt like I had my, my own identity, that everyone associated that with my mom and I couldn't kind of get out from under her shadow And also it just felt like they were associating me with this, like, you know, you don't think of your parents as cool, even (laughs) though my parents were so cool in retrospect. And my mom was so ahead of her time. Just yesterday in the mail, my mom sent me an article. She was cleaning out some files from her home office. And she came across an article that she had written in a newspaper from 1978. Uh, She worked for the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's biggest national newspaper. And she wrote a food column and it was a full page in the newspaper, but it was in their women's section, right? Because oh. that's where the food went, right? There was only food in the women's section. That was women's interest. Um, and she wrote this whole article. And she, I just got it in the mail, like the physical article. It's like a yellowed Aww. newspaper. And she was like, I came across this and I thought you'd find it fun. And it's amazing to see this article that my mom wrote. I love that. I recently started kind of digging into my grandmother's recipes. I was going through them and I just saw like some clippings from like the New York Times, the Detroit Free Press of like recipes <sighs> that she'd try or wanted to make. And it's such a window into yeah. how they were eating and mm-hmm. what they were like. That's beautiful. And that she even found them interesting, right? Like these were not growing in, up in the Midwest. I ate a lot of fusions of European and and yeah, sure. Black There's food, like a right? really deep German. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know. And so to see her f- see these recipes that are definitely not in that trajectory and think like, wow, I want to make this. Some of them she made. I remember them. And then some of them, I think she was just like maybe one day and never got around to it. But mm-hmm. it is inspiring to see how like what they were thinking yeah. and what were the trends that people were doing then or making. Or yeah, like, and your mom was the trend she was like she was yeah maybe trend setting she definitely got people cooking that's really interesting okay so you have decided now to become a food writer in a way that is unlike your mother because you're identifying yourself (laughs) for yourself and you you start writing I thought it was really interesting that you saw 
a food writer's assistant going about their work and traveling and, and talking about food. And that was kind of like a Kickstarter in your brain for like, that's the kind of thing I want to do. Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, before that step, I, I realized if I wanted to be a food writer that I actually didn't know how to cook. And how are you going to write about something you don't know about? It's like writing yes. about politics, but like not living in the capital, you know? Yes. <laughs> so you can't do it like from your armchair. You have to be on the front lines, so to speak. So I moved to New York from Canada to go to culinary school. And I went to culinary school and I worked in kitchens in two big restaurant kitchens here in New York uh, for a while to get my skills up. And it was the hardest work ever. And as you well know, when you're a cook, your hours are like the opposite of the whole rest of the world. Yeah. And so I would come home and I'd be alone. Like it'd be one o'clock in the morning and I'd be wide awake because you can't just like go yeah. to bed the second <laughs> your shift ends. It doesn't work like that. Exactly. So I'd come home and I guess I'd eat something terrible and then I'd read and I would read food books and just read and read and read anything I could get my hand on because ultimately my goal was always to be a food writer, right? My, my goal wasn't to be a chef. So I was chefing or cooking in pursuit of writing about it. So I would read anything I could get my hands on and a book that I was given, I don't even remember who gave it to me now, uh, was this book called The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. Mm -hmm. And I devoured it literally and figuratively in two days. And it was just like the most eye-opening book. So uh, I got this book and I read this book. And in the book, he talks about his assistant on several occasions because the book was a, a collection of articles he'd written in Vogue over the 20 years of his career at that point. And so he always is talking in the book about his various assistants and how some days she's running off to the green market to buy ingredients and other days she's recipe testing. And then some days she's going to the New York public library to research something like super esoteric and fascinating about food history. And then he's, she's also like hunting down unheard of ingredients in Chinatown and all the things that these young women were doing for him were exactly what I wanted to do. So I, uh, that was what set me off. And I went back to my culinary school and I asked the culinary career services director there uh, if he knew this book. Because I didn't realize how famous in New York Jeffrey already was, <laughs> how well-known right. um, in food circles. Yeah, I just was like, I found this amazing book. Have you ever heard of this book? And I held up the book and the guy at my culinary school sort of laughed. And he was like, yeah, I've heard of that book. Like everybody who knows anything about food in New York has heard of that book. And he was like, you know what? That's funny because I saw Jeffrey last week and he's looking for an assistant. And that was it. And it was just like, timing is everything. Yeah. And he sent me on an interview. And a week later, I had the job and I was working for Jeffrey. And that sort of changed the course of my life. You know, I've interviewed quite a few people in the walk-in. And I will say that one common thread is that we all have had very serendipitous moments that have kind of guided our career. The Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program has been helping food and beverage entrepreneurs get their dream businesses off the ground since 2008. They've given out millions of dollars in loans and provided coaching for thousands of small business owners. But when I asked founder Jim Cook what his favorite part of the program is, his answer is simple, the people. 
a woman who was among our first recipients. Carlino Guerra is her name, and her family's from the Caribbean, so she's first generation, and she was really, really passionate about baking. And ultimately, she got big enough, she was able to open her own store. And her family basically renovated the store. They did the demolition, they did a bunch of the construction, and the mayor of Boston, actually, Marty Walsh, showed up for this opening in Blue Hill Avenue in, in Mattapan. And it was just so cool. Brewing the American Dream turns good ideas into brick-and-mortar realities. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams BTAD. For me, the decision to go to culinary school was life-changing. It put me on track to achieve dreams I didn't even know I had. Like, for example, hosting a podcast about the culinary industry. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is in the business of dream making. Their programs prepare students for a variety of roles in the food world in the most achievable way. They've got campuses in Boulder and Austin, plus online programs that include industry externships. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Okay, so you you get this position where you're assisting this amazing writer, um, you're getting this experience. How long did you do that? And at what point did Food & Wine magazine come into play? Right. Um, So I worked for Jeffrey for two years, just before the two-year point. I knew I needed to renew my visa. And the only way to do that, I needed to get a new job. And it was time for me to move on. And Jeffrey knew that, and I knew that. And we were ready. Like, we parted. We're still... You know, it was the right time. And he was willing to help me with whatever I needed to get a new job, which meant introducing me to anyone in the food world that I wanted. And he did. And I was looking for a job and looking for a job. But the second I said, I'm Canadian and I will need a visa, everyone shut down. So I got offered several jobs. You know, as soon as I said I needed a visa, they weren't able to necessarily do that for me. I begged Danielle Boulou, a very fancy French chef on the Upper East Side, who had always been very kind and generous to me. And I asked if I could just come and like pick their brains and chat with them because I was having like a really hard time figuring out what to do next. Then they were like, wait a second. You know, I kept saying how the visa is the issue. And that's what's really, I think, becoming a deterrent for for people to hire me. And they were like, well, why don't you just come work for us? Because, you know, Danielle has three books due in the next four years and has is opening four restaurants and we need help. Like we need to build our team and you would be the perfect person, even though it's not traditional food writing like I thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an opportunity to work on all of these projects with them. And they were like, and we have basically an immigration lawyer on full time contract with us because our kitchen is made up of people from around the world. So we can handle the visa. That's nothing. Like, don't worry about that. And they were the first people to be like, that's the least of our issues. Like, we're going to fight for you. Yeah. And they did. And I went to work for Danielle. And I worked for him for three years. And I did all of these things with him. I helped him write three books. I helped him open several restaurants. And I did all his special events and his charitable work and his PR and TV 
stuff that he was working on. And it was such a small team at the time. You know, he just had three restaurants when I started working for him. By the time I left him, he had six. And now he probably has 15, right? All over the world. Yeah. But he's always just, and, and the people who worked for him, he, he gave me my MBA yes. in restaurants. Like he just taught me about the business of food. I had never been taught the business. You know, I always, people gave me a bag of carrots, told me to chop them, I chopped them. But I never questioned how much the carrots cost and what the food cost of them on the menu and the markup and the, you know, in the supply chain. Like I never asked any questions when I was a cook. And then when I was working for Jeffrey, it was all just like, do whatever you want. Cause you work right. for Vogue magazine and there's no budgets. And Danielle was a very fancy restaurant. Like it's, he's fine dining of course, but it doesn't mean that he didn't run a business and there weren't sure. there was still a P and L and there was still like finances and budgets and the understanding of what it takes to run a restaurant group. And so that was an amazing education. And it was through Danielle that I came to know the people at Food & Wine magazine. Mm-hmm. And two and a half years into working for Danielle, this job opportunity at Food & Wine came along uh, to run part of their marketing department. And ultimately, I, I took on running the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen. And about a year into that job, in the end of 2005, was when Bravo came to Food & Wine and asked if they would partner on Top Chef. And they sent me to do that job. And then that's how my life sort of transitioned into that kind of chapter of things. At the time you were in the kitchen, it seems like culinary media was really starting to roll out as like a real, real thing. Did you ever fantasize or imagine yourself doing anything on TV? Like, did you ever see yourself as one of the travel show hosts or or anything? In truth, not ever. I was sort of on this path and I was, you know, my head was down and I was really only thinking about writing and publishing and and magazines. And and then I was thinking about restaurants and Mm -hmm. and Danielle's work. And then when I moved to Food and Wine, even like there, I I was finally at the magazine of my dreams, working with this team of amazing people and doing all this really great work for the magazine. And it was, I was just like, I worked in magazines and I was a magazine person. Four years into doing Top Chef, I still was in denial that I was a TV person. (laughs) And I was like in full denial till the bitter end, you know, but also because I had this vision of what like media was. And it was this moment, this crossroads of popular culture. And, and the term media was expanding so much into so many areas that it had never been before. And I guess I was just like holding tight to the old school, you mm-hmm. know? Yes. I, get I was it. that old grandma being like, no, I'm a magazine person. <laughs> but of course now I'm so proud, obviously I'm so proud of it. And now I can say in earnest, like that I, I love that I've been able to be on television and it's given me such a larger platform and so much opportunity to do so many things I never yeah. dreamed of. You know, if I remember the first time that I was, I was literally sent by Food & Wine magazine to do Top Chef and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I just felt really, this could be a total disaster, but I trusted Bravo and I knew that they wanted to make like a really serious show about food. It wasn't going to be like the fear factor of food. Right. You know, they wanted, they wanted to make a show about restaurants you know, we all thought we were going to do this show one season and go back to our lives and not think about it again. And here we are 15 years later, still doing this show. So it worked out. All right. So you, you're doing what your job requires at the time. You go do this Top Chef thing. When did you know that it had bubbled? Like, was it after the first season they were like, Hey, we're going to need you to come back. When did, when did that moment happen? Uh, You know, the first season aired and it wasn't, it wasn't like a runaway hit. 
the first season aired and like people watched in the industry and it got some traction and some buzz, but it wasn't like a sure thing. Then they re-aired it a second time on Bravo. And the second time they aired it, we ran the season is when it sort of picked up. And there was a clicking there that made it, I mean, it did well enough that it got us a second season, but it still was like early. It was not by any means like, oh, we're this huge sensation. Not Mm -hmm. at all. So we went and did the second season. And the second season was a very different vibe. We had a bit of a bigger show. There was a lot of drama on the second season, you know, reality style drama, more, way more than there is now. You know, now we focus way more on the food. But at the time, that was like the height of reality television when everything was very dramatic, you know? The finale was very tumultuous. And we were told that Frank Bruni, who was the restaurant critic for the New York Times at the time, was writing an article about Top Chef. Mm -hmm. And that it was going to come out before that finale, which was amazing timing, but we had no idea what he was going to say. And I was incredibly nervous for that article to come out because it could sort of make or break us, just like he was reviewing a restaurant, right? Right. You know, he kept it super tight. We had no idea if he was going to pan it Mm -hmm. or rejoice in it. We really were blind to what was going to happen. And then I pick up the dining section and it's the front page above the fold, the whole front of the dining section. And I don't remember what the headline was, but it was very positive. Mm -hmm. And it basically said like, Top Chef is a real thing and you should be paying attention. And I read this article and I was like, I didn't, I was just going to ask you, were you crying? That's when I was like, Oh my God, we did something. And people are noticing. Yes. And that's the moment where I was like, I think, I think we're going to be okay. And this, this could actually be a big deal. It was a huge deal that Frank Bruni had, and now he's actually quite a, a good friend and uh, we laugh about it all the time. But that was like a, you know, just a, a monumental moment in my career of reading that article and, and realizing that we were kind of making a mark on the restaurant industry. The Wall Slide. Gail, it seems like things have really kind of fallen into place in your career, and that's really exciting. But this is the moment in the conversation and in the walk-in that we talk about the wall slide. And and the wall slide is really just a moment, some moments when things just didn't go your way and kind of sent you spiraling a little bit. And I've been trying to find that moment for you, but I think I would really love if you would tell me about something that may have stood out in your life that just didn't go as you had planned and and maybe made you doubt or wonder if you were actually on the right path. Oh, there have been many, many moments out like that. (laughs) And if anyone says that there haven't been for them, then they're lying. Yeah. I mean, I can think of several, but, you know, in hindsight, you realize that your path might not stay in the exact direction that you anticipated. And sometimes you have to make an un- anticipated sharp left turn because things didn't work out. And in the moment that's hurtful, but it sets you on a new course that on the long term always shows itself, right? And mm-hmm. and becomes meaningful because that's how it is. And you you need to keep moving forward. I mean, early on, I, re- I have a very clear memory of when I was working for Jeffrey Steingarten at Vogue and I needed to find a new job, as I had told you earlier, and I was having a really hard time And I interviewed for many positions. And one of those positions was a job at Martha Stewart at the time, which, you know, had a huge food section, uh, Martha Stewart Living. They were looking for an associate editor. And I thought that would be the perfect job for me. And I got the interview. I went on an interview. I did a second interview. Then they gave me an assignment. 
I had to come up with a number of menus and write recipes for them. I sent in the assignment and they asked me to come back and spend a day in their test kitchen cooking one of the menus that I had created. Mm-hmm. And that was an overwhelming and exciting day that I got to do. I was so nervous. I like put everything into cooking in the, in the test kitchen for them. And then I presented them with my food and then I came back for another interview and then I didn't get the job. And I was devastated. I was devastated because I had put so much time and energy and I had, you know, put all my eggs in that basket, yeah. so to speak. And I had made it so far and to make it so far and not get it, like it was just rejection, you know, mm-hmm. of course I wasn't worthy and I couldn't understand because it's so hard in the moment to understand that as much as you might've done beautifully, you have no idea who you're competing against. Right. Yeah. And the yeah. person who got the job was absolutely worthy of that job. And she ended up keeping that job for many, many years and we became friends and life worked out. But at the time I was so devastated. I remember crying for days. I was hurt. You know, I was so hurt by that. Yeah. And was like, I can't, I don't have the energy. Like I can't do it anymore. Like, how am I going to, what am I going to do next? I felt like I had been hit this wall. Right in my career and had really been rejected. And I questioned, maybe I should just go home. Like, you know, I was losing my visa to be here. And I was like, this is it. I'll just pack it up. Like I did great. I got three years of amazing experience here in New York. I'll take it back to Canada and I'll, I'll find something great there. And that'd be fine. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just can't do this anymore. It's too competitive. It's too cutthroat. You know, New York is just like not meant for me. I literally was like ready to pack it in and go home. and. I stuck it out and life went on and I got that job with Danielle Boulou, which by the way, when I took the job for Danielle was a big decision for me because it was very clearly not what I had been looking for. Like my dream, my goal was to go work for a magazine, yes, a food publication or working on the food section of something. So to go work for a chef in a restaurant was like definitely a left turn. I knew it was a great opportunity, even though in my heart of hearts, it was not the job that I had set out to get. Yeah. Isn't it funny how our destinies are not always packaged, wrapped in what we think it will look like, right? I don't think they ever are, ever. That's something. But I I understand that feeling of getting prepared. I've done many stages in New York and, you know, coming from a small trade school and working alongside people who went to like all of the top tier schools that probably triggered what was not as known then as it is now, but some imposter syndrome, right? It makes you feel like... Oh, absolutely. But interestingly, uh, the moral of that Martha Stewart story was many years later. So now I'm like on my path and I'm on Top Chef and my career has come to something and I'm feeling strong, obviously, and I've recovered from that moment. And I'm at a Christmas party at a friend's house. Mm -hmm. And... I get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's the woman who had been the culinary director at Martha Stewart at the time and who had interviewed me all those years ago. And I had always followed her and been a huge admirer of her work. And she tapped me on the shoulder and she was like, you're Gail, right? And I said, yes, I knew exactly who she was. Mm -hmm. She was like, you probably don't remember me. And I was like, of course, of course I remember you. Uh, you never forget those people, you know, of course I remember That's you true. and in awe of you. And also looking at you, it was like looking at a boyfriend who dumped me, you know what yes. I mean? Like I felt so <laughs> devastated. And she was like, I just want to say how I've been watching you ever since that process. And I'm so proud of you. And I knew you were going to do something great. And mm. I'm just like, just so proud of like the path that you took. And that is really amazing to see. 
and we're friends now. And, you know, you like, it was a really a moment of like, you know what, this was meant to be. And it wasn't the path at the time. It was so hard to see that at the time, but obviously now it all works out and I'm okay. Yeah. Clearly I'm, I'm happy in what I ended up doing. That's cool. That's a cool story. Isn't it funny how that happens though? You get people who have to, for some reason or, or another, you know, re- reject you, even if it's not personal, it's professional. And then to find out that they actually saw in you what you saw in yourself to even send you there to begin with. Well, and I think that's a good point. Like for her, it was purely professional, obviously, mm-hmm. but for me, it was so personal. So personal. And it was so hard yeah. to see as a young person. And it made such a difference yeah. to hear that years later. But also just, you know, to reevaluate my self-worth and keep moving on and know that like that was that moment wasn't gonna define me, although at the time it felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't, right? Like it really didn't. And I grew from it and it it forced me to be humble and to know that it wasn't meant to be and I'm gonna keep moving and I'm gonna find something else. A moment in the walk-in. So before we go, I just want to have a, a little moment in the walk-in with you. And I, I was just thinking back to a time where there was a, a, a little bit of conversation and some scrutiny behind the lack of diversity and talent coming onto Top Chef. And I know that having to address that issue or even being addressed as it relates to that issue can be you know, jarring, you know, like immediately you're kind of like, ah, we're okay. Someone has brought to our attention that perhaps we're missing something. How do we go about addressing that? Yeah. That's a big, a big piece of our puzzle. Well, I will say that first of all, I don't think anyone just brought it to our attention. I think it's always been in our attention. We've always known that we could do better. And I think that we have always strived for diversity, Mm -hmm. but our industry is not as diverse as it needs to be. And we can only cast from what we have. So it's not a top chef issue. We take responsibility for what we put out in the issue, but it's not just a top chef issue. It's an industry issue. I mean, we all know and can say flat out that our industry, when you look at the percentage of African-Americans who are at the chef level, at the management level, when you look at women, percentage of women, like we are talking of an industry that huge needs gaps. an overhaul. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Huge mm-hmm. gaps in the industry. So Top Chef can only find executive chefs at that level who are diverse and who represent America. If those chefs have first been given the opportunities to reach those levels so that we can cast them. Mm-hmm. But we also have always known we could always do better and we are addressing it in every way we can. To that point though, you actually have increased the diversity amongst cast and chefs. Yes, every every season, not just by the way, since the pandemic. This has been a long 15 year climb and we're committed to climbing it. But, you know, it also like the matter at hand in the world or in this country, like it will take years to mm-hmm. for us all to work together and make it better and better every day, right? Like, and it requires a lot of effort, but we, we want to make that effort, you know, we but it's, start, you got to start, and you got to keep moving forward. And sometimes it's hard to see how far you've come until you look back. And if you think of where we were in the industry 10 years ago, all diversity in all its forms mm-hmm. in the last 10 years, there's been an enormous amount of change for the better. And so it's an evolution, right? Like it, it, we need to address it and we need to call it by its name. And we need to think constantly about how to make us better at what we do. 
you know, interestingly, to address the, the woman issue of that piece of the equity puzzle and equality puzzle, we've always cast a 50-50 male-female ratio on our show. Mm-hmm. Always. Cast. That doesn't mean it's going to play out that women are going to win 50% of the time, yes. but we start at 50-50 and then it becomes just a, a fair game, best person needs to win. But we always cast 50-50, which is not representative of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. The industry is like 85-15 yes. or something, yes. mm-hmm. right? So we always started there in an effort to give women a stronger chance. And we've had an incredible track record in that way. And we've also, we, you know, we have had a lot of diversity on the show and more to come. I mean, yeah. the great news is that now we all look at food and inspiration and, and, and cuisine differently. And we are all shifting our gaze, I hope, and certainly for the better, away from that Western culinary emphasis and looking at great cooking in a much broader view. And looking and giving respect to cuisines of the world that they really deserve. I mean, you'll see in season 18 that we spend a lot of time and effort, not only on this cast that brings such a broad, interesting perspective to us from everywhere from the Congo to Haiti to Thailand, Japan, Mexico in incredibly uh, interesting regional ways and on and on that we're also honoring challenges that force everyone to cook that way, not just the people who have a background in that way. Yes. And so give and give credit and respect for and reverence for how these cuisines have contributed to what makes American food and just as equally as anything else. So it's exciting to see that there we are getting better. We are working towards it. And it is not, it won't happen in a moment. None of this is we have seen clearly that our biases won't be changed overnight in this country, but that doesn't mean that every day it's not worth waking up and putting our feet on the ground and marching forward in with resilience and and with hope that it will improve. That's very exciting. And I'm, I'm so glad that Top Chef and Bravo have been moving in that direction in some form or fashion the entire time, but also because the industry really looks to Top Chef as a leader, you know, like even it's not even though it's not like a restaurant, you know, or one person, you know, like they really look at Top Chef as this as what's really going on in the world. You know, the world. The I, food. I'm honored. Like, I, I think we take that responsibility very seriously. And that goes for not just obviously equality and diversity, but for matters of the pandemic. And I think that you'll see this season, we face it head on. We face all of these issues in real conversation. We don't shy away from it. We don't pretend these things aren't happening. We don't make it look like restaurants are all okay right now because by the way, no one is okay. And uh, there's some relief coming and there's financial relief and there's vaccines and hopefully uh, the restaurant industry will rebound. Mm -hmm. But there has been so much suffering in our industry and we're really hoping that we can address that on the season. And I think still most uh, viewers who aren't in the industry, which is the majority of our viewers, um, still don't truly understand the depths of damage that have been done in our industry by this pandemic mm-hmm. and also the work that needs to be done in our industry to make it a more equitable place to work for people of color, for trans people, for LGBTQ people, for women, for all of us. Yeah. And there's, you know, to make it a place, uh, an industry that 
that offers the same benefits that other industries offer. And, and I think that actually the pandemic has allowed us to come together and, and lobby for those things more than ever, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, the so Independent true. Restaurant Coalition has really helped that, which was spearheaded by Tom. You know, it really, I'll give Tom props that Tom Colicchio was one of, there are many people who worked towards restaurant relief and, and, and that coming into play. But Tom was at the head of that project um, and a vocal leader along the way, making sure that restaurants got the stimulus they needed to hopefully allow them to survive. I've only met him a couple of times, but his commitment to the restaurant industry is amazing. It is. It's unwavering. Yeah. And he's everything you see on TV is what you get in real life. And those are the things that I really appreciate about some of our, our industry friends. I love that. I agree. Well, you got me extremely excited about Top Chef. Me too. Yeah, I'm so I'm excited to see it. I'm so even more than that. I'm over the moon about meeting you and talking with you today. And thank you for making it just such the most warm and and comfortable and insightful conversation. Well, ditto. I mean, you're the one who put me in the seat. So thank you for making it a comfortable place to be in an open space. Well, you know, we try to make the walk-in as as cool as it can be. You know? Yeah, <laughs> spent a lot of time in walk-ins, and this is definitely the most comfortable one I've ever been. Well, thank you and <laughs> blessings. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Gail. It's really great talking to you. See you soon on Bravo. If you want to know what Gail Simmons is up to these days, check out her website at gailsimmons.com or follow her on Instagram. She's at Gail Simmons Eats. And don't forget to tune in and watch Gail hosting the premiere season of Top Chef Amateurs on Bravo. The show premieres in July of 2021. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Hen Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickert, and Yumi Araki. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Samantha Gatsik. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jennifer Cuccidi is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. 
time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.